Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Frank Newman, Creative Learning Specialist. This episode is part of a three-part podcast series featuring conversations curated by influential Finnish educator Parsi Salberg. Professor Parsi Salberg is an educator and author. He has worked as a school teacher, teacher educator, researcher, and policymaker advising schools and education system leaders, including the World Bank, Finland's Ministry of Education and Culture, and Harvard University. He is the recipient of numerous prestigious awards, and his many publications inspire teachers and education system leaders around the world. Now, the professor of education policy at Southern Cross University. Parsi has a particular interest in the role of play in education, and increasingly wants to reframe how we understand health, play, and creativity in learning. In this, the second of three episodes about the challenges facing education in Australia, Professor Salberg talks about First Nations education. We start the talk with an acknowledgement to country and an original song from the Menindi School Choir. Hello, I am Jess from Menindia. We remember the Gadigal people, the old men and women who looked after this country yesterday, today and tomorrow. Thank you.
Pazi Salberg is joined by Fiona Kelly, a Barkindji Nyampa woman and executive principal of Manindi Central School, where she grew up and went to school herself. Also on stage is Dr. Chris Sara, the founder and chairman of the Stronger Smarter Institute. This event was recorded live in the Utsun Room as part of a series of conversations in partnership with the University of New South Wales Gonski Institute that took place in 2021. Welcome, everybody. Good evening. Wonderful way to start a conversation with, um, with the music uh, like that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming. This is the second part of these critical conversations that we must have here in Australia about education. And now to, tonight we're going to talk about Indigenous education issues. And I think I want to say a couple of things before we get into this uh, conversation. I had a really unique opportunity yesterday and today to uh, spend time with the uh, school leaders and teachers here in Australia who are and have been working on these issues already for a long time. And I'm saying this also as somebody who is not Australian, as you can hear from my accent, I'm I'm not from here. Uh, We moved here two and a half years ago, almost exactly, from uh, Finland. And it's it's a very different place where we came from. And this is one of those one of those conversations and one of those issues that I, I really have been always curious about. I'm going to say a few things before I'm going to ask colleagues to speak to you a little bit more about that. But I want to recognize a couple of people. My friend, former minister Adrian Piccoli, joining us. Thanks, Adrian, for coming. And uh, Warren and Sue, uh, who were leading this uh, reconciliation conference here um, earlier this week. So thanks for coming. My family is here as well. And um, some of my students are here, which is wonderful. Uh, wonderful thing. So now if you think about the purpose or the goals that we may have for the event like this, since I don't know who you are, I don't know exactly why you came here, but I I guess that many of you, probably all of you came here because you feel like I do, that we need to work hard. We probably need to work harder for a nation that is just, that is equitable, and the nation that is uh, reconciled. And that's exactly what these conversations are going to do. Um, my personal interest and probably the main, main reason why I, I decided to work in Australia is the, the equity part of the story um, that we cannot really distinguish or separate from this, uh, this overall the purpose. So the, the um, and I, I have to I ask uh, permission from, from Warren to borrow some of your, uh, some of your um, thoughts yesterday in the conference when you introduced the conversation with the school leaders and teachers there. I think you had three or four goals for the meeting and, and I think that being aware of those goals is exactly the reason why we are having successful events and conversations like we had yesterday and today. So one of those goals for me to, uh, tonight here is to celebrate, and I'm, I'm humbled to be part of the celebration, to celebrate the fact that we are, we are here, part of the, the, the country. We live in a country that has the longest living culture uh, in the world. And it comes with the, the culture of education and raising children and, and, and doing things that we are trying to do here, here right now. But I also... Uh, would like to set a call for this evening to openly, and I invite all of you to do that, to openly learn from one another. That's why we are here. I'm learning a great deal. I probably uh, know the least of any of any other people in, the, in this room about these things that we are uh, talking about. So my role here is not to try to tell how things should be. My role here is to give space and, uh, and room for you, the audience, and, and, and particularly Fiona, and, uh, and Chris here to speak about these things. And then finally, I think what I'm learning about this topic 
is that we do a lot of talking and we have a lot of these conversations and, and try to kind of understand what's going on and, and why things are sometimes very complicated and complex. Um, but we, we need to move from those conversations. And this is particularly the, the thing that made me feel so, so good after this reconciliation conference here yesterday and today is that we need to, we, we need to find ways also to move to action. So what can we do? So I invite all of you also to make a promise maybe to try to do more, not just uh, talk about more and have more of these conversations, but um, do, do more. And I'm sitting here, I'm sharing this stage with the uh, two of those people who have done a great deal and continue to do wonderful things uh, in their communities, in the states, to the, the families and children and education as well. So that's why this is a very unique um, opportunity. If I can show you some things, um, just for those who are not familiar with, the, with my background, I think it's very important to also um, understand my context to this, this conversation. So in, in this map, you can see Finland there in the right, right of this, um, this map on the, on the top. So Finland is part of the, the Northern Europe, then the Sweden and, and Norway uh, uh, to the west. And this red space that you can see there is the only indigenous nation in, in the European Union currently. Uh, so we, we call it Sami people. There are about 100,000 Sami people living there, spread through Norway, Sweden, Finland, and, and some of them in, in a Russian uh, territory. Um, so we have, I was born in a very northern part of this country, so, so these conversations about indigenous cultures and languages and traditions is, um, is something that I remember from my childhood, but I never really thought about these things in my own country and culture before I came here to Australia, really, because here this issue is much more concrete and it's, uh, uh, of course, much more uh, kind of a, uh, longer and, and, and deeper culturally. But I, I come here to this conversation also with this memory and tradition also from my past. Then the other thing, um, two and a half years ago when I started to learn about Australia and education here, you, you know, this, this was one of those first things I, I really, that really stopped me. And I, I hope that at, at some part of the conversation we can, we can speak a little bit about this. What you see here in this graph is the um, data from the OECD's uh, program for International Student Assessment uh, regarding student literacy, reading literacy, here in Australia since the year 2000. So we are looking at the 20 years of, of comparable data about the reading skills, uh, literacy skills of Australian uh, children. Uh, one thing you can see here, just without going any, any deeper there, is that the, um, uh, the reading uh, literacy in Australia has not improved in 20 years. All of these lines, the, the, the highest line there is the, the most uh, affluent part of the 15-year-olds here that were, um, were part of the OECD's, uh, uh, have been part of the OECD's me measurements. Then this purple line there below, mm -hmm. this red line that is the OECD average line, is the, the most disadvantaged Australians. And you can see that those lines are going like a little bit downwards, which means that the, the results are the level of re reading literacy in, um, in our schools here, according to this measurement, has not improved. It's, it's going down. But then the, the orange line there is the, the part of uh, indigenous children here in Australia and their performance. And this was really, uh, really something that I couldn't understand. I, I couldn't understand why, how can it be that it is like this today? 
And the other thing, I, it was very hard for me to, to believe that n- nothing really has happened during the last 20 years. And I know that people like Chris and, and others have done a lot of work here. So it may be because of this measurement, it may be because of something else. I'm going to show you the, the last uh, picture here and the data here that shows the same thing, but in a, in a little bit different way. So those of you, if you're sitting there in the back of the room, you cannot probably read this, but the colors are the most significant thing. So there on the left-hand side, you will see Australian 15-year-olds, the indigenous 15-year-olds who were uh, sitting the OECD's PISA test. And these red, uh, red bars there that start from the year 2000 is on the top and goes all the way today to 2018. And you can see that it's been between 33 and 30, uh, 43% of all the indigenous students here, according to the OECD, are low-performing students. So, and and this, the proportion of low-performing low low indigenous students in the OECD data has increased. So it's, it's almost half of the kids belong to this. And then this green bar there is, um, represents the, the high-performing indigenous kids. So it goes from 2% to 5, 5% across the, the, the 20, uh, 20 years of uh, history of this measurement. And then on this right-hand side, you see the non-Indigenous students. Again, in Australia, we're looking at this country here, where you see the striking difference between these two groups of, uh, groups of children here. Again, I don't know how to, uh, how to explain this. I don't know what is going on exactly, but I do know that this is something that is very hard for me to accept in a country that is the, one of the wealthiest countries in, uh, in the world, and something needs to be done. So... I will stop here, and I would like to join the audience and, and listen to you colleagues uh, talking about uh, your experience and, and what you do. We're going to go first to Fiona Kelly. Fiona is the um, executive principal of Menindi Central School, and in in December I visited your school. I, I think you were not there when I, I was came. on leave. Yes, yes I, <laughs> you were on leave, but I saw I saw your children there. I saw yep. some of those uh, kids who were singing. I saw many of your colleagues there, and I saw your, your community and, and I saw your school. And uh, I was actually quite impressed about what you can find after driving hours and hours in a dirt road, <laughs> <laughs> being afraid of you know hitting the kangaroo or emu or something like this, and then you come to this community where. Um, where the passion and, and love and care uh, is so well visible in a school. So I'm very, very happy t- uh, to uh, you know, have you here, Fiona, and, um, and particularly that you brought your Thank children you. with you. And I'm going to pass this over now to you to um, you know, take 15 minutes of your story you. and, 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 and try to share something um, that we can talk about later. Thank you. Thanks, Fazi. Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land, and pay my respect to elders past and present. Firstly, how good were our kids? Like, they're just amazing. Um, and this is why I do what I do. Um, it, it's, about, it's about the kids. And, you know, no one from home, the kids' parents or anyone in the community really thought that they'd ever see kids at Menindi, from Menindi singing at the opera house. And I never ever thought that I'd be sitting on stage with Parsi and Chris at the Opera House either. So I'm really, really nervous. <laughs> um, we're we're going to sing in the end. Yeah, I'm going to sing now. <laughs> with Chris as back up there now. Um, so Menindi. So I come from Menindi, um, which is probably about 1,100 kilometres from here, west of here, um, closer to the South Australian border. We only have 500 people in our community. And I grew up there. 
and um, did my schooling there. And then our school now has 89 students and that's from kindergarten to year 12. Um, it's an amazing little school, um, but I'm biased. <laughs> and um, so I think for, the, for my part, like, I was lucky enough to, to have really strong family. I, I need to talk, if I'm doing anything, I need to tell you the story of my mum. My mum was an amazing woman. Well, um, I'm one of 10 kids and she died, um, my, my dad died when mum was pregnant with the ninth kid. And um, so she was just so stoic and then she later remarried and we had our little brother, we've got our little brother with us as well. So we've got 10 kids in the family. But mum was someone who I can remember when she worked three jobs just to make sure that we had education, you know, be able to go to school, that we had clothing, we were fed. And we all had responsibilities. So we learnt from a very young age that we had responsibility at home, but also in the community as well. And so, you know, so from, with mum, she, she taught us, like, to be respectful. She made us um, think of others. And, you know, so we, we were compassionate. We learnt compassion at a young age. But we're also... She taught us to be very grateful for what we do have because she'd always say there's others worse off than what you are. So, you know, don't ever feel sorry for yourself. Um, so, yeah, so I... The eighth kid of 10, you know, so... And we lived in this little three-bedroom house which is smaller than this area here. How she did it, I don't know. How she didn't go crazy because there were seven girls in that. And, um, yeah, and so... And it was always so clean. And, like, as a mum now, I'm thinking, wow, how did she do this? But, yeah, and so she had, she instilled in us that we would go to school and we'd do our best. And, you know, we had to behave at school because if we misbehaved at school and come home and told her, we'd get in big trouble when we got home. And But there was always this notion with mum that you would go to school, get a good education, and you'd just get a job when you grew up. There was never any doubt that you wouldn't get a job. And out of the t- 10 kids, there was only one, I've only got one brother who didn't have a permanent job throughout his life. She was... Also, the thing with mum, she was determined that our circumstances weren't going to become our destiny. And, and I think, I'm, and I'm really, really grateful for that. And, and she, you know, we're very close-knit and so it's, I think, because of my family, my sisters and that, that I have met my brothers, that I've been able to get to where I am now. So I went to Menindee School and... Um, I, was, I can remember when my older sisters used to go and I'd be crying to go with them. And then as soon as I started school, I was crying to go home and <laughs> didn't want to be there. But, I, but I, I learned to love school and except the one time and a teacher smacked me for not listening or something. But, um, but I had this amazing teacher in um, years five and six, Mr Brown, and he was, he was my champion. Rita Pearson always talks about that you need, every kid needs a champion. Well, he was my champion. He looked beyond my colour, the colour of my skin. He, you know, just expected so much more from me. He didn't mistake my shyness for not understanding and he pushed me to my limits and he was consistent. Every day, you know, I put... And I had him, I was lucky enough to have him for two years and he just kept us going and making sure that I, you know, did the best that I could. So he, you know, convinced mum, he thought I should go away to school wanted me to come down here, which I didn't want to do, but I went to Broken Hill for my high school. And then I saw Mr Brown again when I was in year 10 and he said, I expect to see you in a teacher's college in a couple of years. So I did that, um, (laughs) went to MacArthur Institute and then filled in to say that I would go anywhere in the state but Burke. And where did I end up? (laughs) Burke. 
<laughs> but I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I was at Burke for five and a half years and I've got lifelong friends that I've met there in Burke, my partners um, from Burke. And so, yeah, it was a great time. But then I came back home to Menindi for six months and taught at TAFE and then went into Broken Hill where I worked at Alma Bugledo Preschool and also at Alma School. Whilst there, the principal um, encouraged me to go for the assistant principal position, which I'd never thought about doing because, like, I was happy just, you know, being with the kids every day. And so I, I did that. I went for the position, won the position, and then... I was there for about two, three years and then Brian, and I'm, Brian's in the audience, I'll call him old Brian because my partner's named Brian and he, he doesn't get offended with this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he was saying to me, come back to Menindi, come home. And um, so I did, I agreed to go back to Menindi. And one of the things that I first found when I went back to Menindi was that there was this mantra of have a go. And Oh, it used to drive me insane. And I remember being in an exec meeting and saying, I am sick to death of being shamed by Menindi kids because we were putting them up on the stage, you know, like, oh, it was good for, you know, for Aboriginal kids or it was good for these poor little communities, you know, and it was just frustrating. And so I said, if we can't be as good as everyone else there, we don't get up there. Um, and I think tonight our, our kids demonstrated that, you know, that we had to raise our expectations for our kids. And so we, and that's the thing that we've, I've been trying to do now, you know, is get the parents to want them to raise their expectations of us, you know. Sometimes it comes back to bite me, when, <laughs> but on the whole, it's good because you know they make us accountable. They're trusting their kids with us every single day, and I think that's really important that we do that. So yeah, so I was at Menindi, and I was ready to leave the department. I was becoming disillusioned, and. Went away and did Stronger Smarter and came back Stronger Smarter and um, then started my journey for the principalship at Menindi and I was lucky enough to get that at the end of 2016. So I, th I think for me, like, I, I had no desire to ever be a principal and but I just wanted to, to have people there. I wanted to, because I believed in our community, I believed in our kids and our staff. We have lots of local people working as SLSOs in our school. And they're the people that make sure that local knowledge is in the classroom every single day. You know, they're the ones who are showing us. It's not just about having this great Aboriginal perspective or what. They're showing us every, the way that we interact, the relationships. And, you know, and I'm fortunate enough to be working with those every single day. Our, if our SAO was here now, she'd be telling us that she's the boss of the school. That's what she tells me every day. Um, and, and that's what I love. You know, like, I try to get rid of a lot of the egos, we don't have a place for it in our school, you know. We're not that typical hierarchy. We're more of a circle, I guess, where everybody's got a responsibility and a role to play. You know, it doesn't matter what your title is or your salary is, but, you know, if one person's away, it impacts on everyone else. And, and that's what I try to build up in our school. But that's what, I, that's what makes our school so special, I, I believe, in here. I, you know, the local community will say that when Brian was principal, he took the locks off the gates. Well, I'd like to think now that I took, took away the fence. You know, we're not this separate entity in the community. We're part of the community. You know, the community know that they can come in to us and we'll go out as much as we can because that's what it's about. You know, we're more like the hub of the community now. And that's because we value our relationships with our parents so much and all the other stakeholders in the community, our agencies, you know, like any relationship, they take time. 
You've got to build them. But it also takes that maintenance as well. You can't just think, oh, well, you know, I get on good with this person and, you know, a year down the track, have no interaction with them and expect that they're going to support you. It's that ongoing interactions and relationship building that we need to do. So a couple of the things that I've tried to do um, with with it, no, no, I've got a great team, you know, like I've been fortunate enough to have people, you know, so that I don't make any of these decisions by myself. You know, I've got Daniel, our senior leader, right beside me and I would not take on this position without him there. Um, and because I know that I've got his support, but he's also honest enough to tell me, like he will say, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, how do you think that's going to work? And I think that's important. You know, I've got our AEO who's in the back up there. She will tell me every single day. And that's what we need. We need to be honest. You know, we need to be respectful of what each person's bringing to our school and our community. And so that's, that's what I'm doing. But also the kids. You know, we need to talk to the kids and listen to the kids. You know, I heard some people saying, oh, you know, like, I'll talk to the teachers or talk to the parents. And I'm like, just talk to the kids first. It's not rocket science, you know. It's about respecting them. They've, they've got a voice. And so, you know, if my, some kids, it might take a little longer, but certainly talk to them and take the time to value what they say. You know, I have a very open-door policy at school, so much so that kids will come into my office at recess and lunch or in the morning because it's been really cold in the mornings and say, Miss, or sometimes it's Fifi, can we sit in your office because it's too cold outside? And I'm like, yep, go there. And you, I trust them. I trust the kids, you know, and they know that they can come in there. So I, I want them to feel that, you know, I'm not this big bad, you don't get sent to the principal. I'm lucky enough that a lot of the kids will say, I'm going to see Fiona then, or I'm going to see Miss, you know, so, which is good. You want them to do that because, and I think the main reason they do that is because they know that I'm going to listen. You know, if a kid gets sent to me, the first thing I'm going to say to them is, what happened, darling? <laughs> and then, you know, so they'll talk to us then because I need to hear their side of the story. I think the other thing too that is like we would like to build capacity in our staff and I know that there's somebody probably rolling their eyes at me now. I do it every time when I say, or I go, I've been thinking and then it's like, oh, here she goes again. Mm. And, 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 you know, that's what we want. We want them to, I want people because I, and as I keep saying to our staff, but also our parents, we had four mums come present with us yesterday. You know, how amazing is that, that these people, you know, felt brave enough, even though it was sort of pushed a little bit. <laughs> um, but they did it, you know, and that is what it's about, you know. But I said to them, I wouldn't ask you to do it if I didn't think you could do it. Um, so I think that was one of the big things for me. And so I think, you know, as a principal, we need to stay true to ourselves. You know, sometimes we can get lost and get on other people's journeys where they think we should be going, but we need to remain true to ourselves because the kids need to be able to see themselves in us. And, you know, to me, I think that's one of the most important things that we can do. And so I think I want our kids and I want our parents and our teachers to aim high, you know, like anything is possible. And I'll just end with, like, our kids tonight showed that they can do anything. Thank you so much. <laughs> can I... Um, do you mind, Chris, if I ask a very quick yeah, question, then turn, turn to you. You know, I, I remember <laughs> when I came to see your school, and I've seen this, obviously, in many, many other schools and primary schools, but particularly there, that the, um, uh, there was a lot of signs of like a storytelling 
culture in, in the school. Um, and and the, I'm asking this as somebody who doesn't have the, the background and full understanding. But could, could you tell us that what, what is the role of the storytelling in a school like yours from the point of view of children's learning and, and, and running a school? Oh, what, I, what does it mean? I, I think it's just, well, like traditionally, that's what we did. But I think, you know, everyone's got a story to tell. And, and we need to know the stories. Um, so, you know, and as I said, we've got our... The language and culture that we do in the school is just amazing, you know. And what we've done is made it a bit more authentic now um, so that it's not just a tokenistic thing that we can tick off to say that we're doing language and culture. You know, we want it real, like tonight, you know. Um, that song, that those kids, those kids wrote that song. You know, and yeah, yeah. then we had it translated into Barkindji. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, like, if we can encourage that because that's just a great starting point because everybody can tell a story, but we've got to listen. How about leader, leadership? Oh. Um, you tell stories as, as, to, as a leadership uh, yeah, thing? Yep, I, yeah. and I think every... Because I, I love to talk too, so... Right. <laughs> I can tell. Even not in this sort of situation, though. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, like... Everything we do is is based around a party, and like so, with our you know our staff and and our community, you know that's what it is. It's those continual yeah, um, yeah. stories that are told. Yeah, yeah. but no, but I think listening and taking away the important things yeah, from it is. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really unique thing in in many of the schools I've seen here in Australia. Is, is this storytelling thing? Uh, you, you know, compared to schools in many other countries I've visited, there's nothing really. You can see primary schools and, and classrooms and secondary schools, particularly where there's nothing, no sign of anything storytelling. It's much more kind of a space where knowledge is transmitted from adults to to students. So, so that's why I was asking this. And and I th- one thing I didn't say is that like one of the kids summed up our school is like a big family. So yeah, we yeah. try to create this sense of belonging, so that every kid, every parent, every staff member feels like they belong at our school. Um, so we're just like a big family, dysfunctional at yeah, times, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but supportive. W- wonderful. As, yeah. Now, Dr. Chris Sara. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. You know, this, this gentleman is somebody who doesn't really need too much uh, introduction, but uh, it's probably enough to say that you are founder of uh, Stronger Smarter Institute, yes, about 15, 16, 17 years ago, 2004, yeah, something like, like that, this. Yeah. And you know, this this was one of those first things that when when I came here uh, three, two and a half years ago, um, somebody told me about this aspect of education, and and this institute was one of the first ones I, I, I heard. So, um, I, and I, l- I learned yesterday and today that you are not just although you're based in Brisbane and and the institute is there, but your work is all around the country, which is a wonderful. A wonderful thing. And um, what do you want to tell us? Thanks, Parsi. I'll start, as I should, by acknowledging the traditional custodians. Um, and it's humbling, you know, to sit and listen to Fiona's story um, in many ways, you know, because to hear you say that you were ready to throw it in and then you embraced the stronger, smarter approach uh, and then it took you to a whole new level... It's it's a pretty cool thing for me to sit and listen to, and so I'm I'm humbled by that. And I think it's an approach that's not it's not a program that you buy or something. It's a philosophical approach uh, that if educators choose to explore it, understand it, 
and then apply it locally, it can um, it will very much guarantee success in your school and your community. And again, we saw your children being the fruits of that labour. So again, I'm just really humbled to watch you, watch your children in action, um, and blown away when you when you consider or you reflect on the exponential kind of impact and what life those children are going to grow into and um, how they're going to influence the world going forward. So I, I should mention just briefly the, the sort of stronger, smarter approach and what are the kind of pillars because it's, it's quite easy to understand and we've tried to make it as simple as possible. Um, but I don't want to pretend for a moment that the work is easy. The, the formula is very, very simple. But the work is always, and you'll know this, the work is very, very hard. Uh, so really what it comes down to is, um, you know, uh, the Stronger Smarter approach is about a, a school culture that nurtures a strong and positive sense of being Aboriginal or, or any student cultural identity, and I'll come back to a longer conversation about this, as opposed to colluding with or nurturing a negative stereotypical kind of sense of cultural identity. It's about uh, embracing positive community leadership as opposed to embracing a kind of community leadership that's about being the victim or booting the victims. It's about that kind of community leadership that's beyond victim status. And it's about high expectations, relationships, emphasis on the word relationships because there's a, there is a duality in a relationship in which we as educators who are paid to be in such a privileged position have to be accountable for our part of the relationship rather than just sit back and blame the complexity of students or the complexity of the communities that they come from. So that's, that's very much the stronger, smarter approach. And again, as I said, if we understand that and we apply it, the work from then on is very, very hard, but the rewards are great and, and it will guarantee success. But I thought I might spend some time just lingering on the, the notion of identity, Parsi, and you heard me talk about this yesterday because it's such a... It can be loaded with complexity if we let it. And uh, when I was writing my PhD some years ago, I'd come across the great philosopher, uh, Roy Basker, um, who was based at the University of London, a wonderful man, and I described his kind of critical realist philosophy um, as something quite special and quite liber liberating and, for me, quite emancipatory. And I think his ideas will not hit a rhythm for... It, they will find it's... I don't know that the world is ready for his ideas, but I just wanted to share one kind of intellectual concept that he offered around the notion of identity. So some of you who will know a little bit about me and where I've come from will know that I, my father was Italian, my mum Aboriginal, my hometown's uh, Bundaberg, and that's my grandfather's country. Obviously, we live in Australia. And so one might say, well, are you Italian or are you Aboriginal or are you Australian? And then, of course, you'll get these nut jobs who'll say, well, you're bloody Australian, so we're going to force you to have to be Australian, forget about all the other stuff, move on, blah, blah, blah. So what's the point? The point is identity is not static. Uh, and Roy had a way of offering a kind of analysis of this through what he called the concrete universal. And Roy would say that our... Identity is not just um, our culture alone. In fact, our identity is our core humanity. And upon our core humanity, there are various layers that are cultural, sociological, gender-based, all, all sorts of layers upon our core humanity. Now, that's interesting, and I'll come back and talk about this in a policy context, 
Because if we, if we understand that, you know, I've got these various layers, uh, a layer of being Aboriginal, a layer of being Italian, um, and those layers are influenced by context or time and place. If we understand, our, say in my case, my total sense of identity is all of those things, is my core humanity and the various layers, you will understand that at the level of my core humanity, I'm the same as you. At that level, we are same. But there's a level at which we're different, and that's okay. So when we design policy, we shouldn't be trying to force everybody to be the same. We should just accept that there are ways in which we can be same at the level of our core humanity, and there are ways at which we can be different. And rather than be spooked by those differences or threatened or afraid of those differences, Imagine if we lived in a society that was excited and enthused and um, had a sense of wonderment about those different layers upon our core humanity. So let me explain this some more for, for my context. Um, I, I mentioned that those layers will resonate differently according to time and place. And so for me, when I'm in Italy, um, my father had a wife and three children in in Italy before he came out to Australia in the 1950s. And like Fiona, I was youngest of 10 here in Australia. So my father was quite a stallion. Um, <laughs> and uh, so when I'm in, in the village of Milianico and I'm standing on a piece of farmland and my cousins are explaining to me and they're talking Italian, they're saying, there's olives over there, there's grapes there. And they said, see that little bit of a patch there? That's where our grandfather was shot dead, that's where your grandfather was shot dead by the Germans when they marched through Milianico in the Second World War. Um, in that moment, um, and I'm speaking Italian with them, my Italian's getting better, but because of where I am and what's happening, my sense of being Italian is resonating very, very strongly. I haven't stopped being Aboriginal. It's just that my sense of being Aboriginal is not resonating as strongly as my sense of being Italian. And when I'm back home at Bundaberg and I'm, when I'm sitting at the Burnett River and I've got my fishing line in the river and I think, this is pretty cool. My, my people have fished in this river for thousands of years. I, I look across, I see Paddy's Island and I know of stories from less than 200 years ago where some of my ancestors were slaughtered there. My sense of being Aboriginal resonates very, very strongly. Uh, or when I'm... Uh, running a government department that's called Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Partnerships. My sense of being Aboriginal resonates very, very strongly. When I was growing up in Bundaberg getting called a little black whatever, that makes my sense of being Aboriginal resonate strongly. I haven't stopped being Italian. It's just my sense of being Italian hasn't, isn't resonating as strongly as my sense of being Aboriginal. So for, for me, for most of my life, my sense of being Aboriginal resonates more strongly most of the time. But it's not just who I am. Uh, I'm all of those things. So, so the point again, as I said, there are levels at which we are same and levels at which we are different. And that's okay. So what does that mean for us if, if I'm a school teacher or, or a, a policy maker or something like that? Well, it's interesting because we're not locked into that kind of policy challenge of having to force everybody to be the same. Um, and it allows us to lean in and understand that layer of being Aboriginal and what, what demands 
that brings. So when I, I sit here and I see um, the former Minister of Education, Adrian Pickley, here, when he built a bitumen road to, where was it, Walgett? He made sure that he got a bitumen road built um, so that kids could access, Aboriginal kids could access the school. Every other minister up until that point was fixated on the layer of being Aboriginal and a stifled perception of being Aboriginal, by the way, and what was good enough for those kids. Whereas this minister, I hope you don't mind me, I hope I'm not embarrassing you by saying this, <laughs> got deeper than that and connected with the humanity of those people who lived in those communities and said, what is it that their humanity demands? Well, their humanity demanded that they have access to schooling in the same way that everybody else, everybody else does. When Eddie Wu, and I, I don't know his story well, but I think he started the online stuff because the student was at home. Okay, the student had an injury or something, or maybe it was a disability, which could have been another layer. But he got down to the level of core humanity and thought, okay, what is required here? What's required is continued... It's that student's humanity that demanded continuing access to education. So what does that mean for us as educators when we confront the challenges of Aboriginal education? Well, it means we've got to almost forget, not entirely, but when we consider, okay, what outcomes are good enough for Aboriginal children and Torres Strait Islander children, let's get deeper than a kind of potentially stifled view of the layer of being Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, and let's get down to the level of core humanity and let's figure out what's demanded. And what's demanded there is a level of kind of education outcomes that are as good for any Australian child. And so we set the target up there. And once we set the target in terms of outcomes that that's where we need to get to, because their humanity demands that, then we've got to remember that layer of being Aboriginal. And so if that's where we're going, then we have to take into account that layer of being Aboriginal, that layer of those other layers as part of the process of getting to there rather than having a, getting stuck on a fixated or stifled view of um, that, that um, layer of being Aboriginal and thinking that that's good enough, going to be good enough for Aboriginal kids. And I watch us do this as a country, you know. The best example is when we, when we think we do secondary schooling for Aboriginal kids, particularly those who live in remote communities. And we think that we're so great that we offer them scholarships and we think, oh, okay, maybe we are connecting with humanity by offering scholarships for kids to access secondary schooling but we completely ignore the humanity of those 55 kids who are left on the runway, thinking, where's my, where's my opportunity here? When instead we should be saying to all of those kids in all of those remote communities, you are located amongst uh, some amazing people in such sophisticated and rich country, uh, and country that where your people have been connected for tens of thousands of years. Why the hell would we want to take you away from that? Rather than let you starve at the end of the, the vine there, your humanity demands that we have to do better and take education to you so that you can prosper in the same way that any other Australian child should. I think I'll leave it at that. Um, maybe. I would like to ask you, am I hearing you correctly? Uh, the earlier, yesterday, you spoke about this 
high expectations relationships that where where you were coming towards the end is this what you are, we are talking about the, the okay, could you say a little bit more about what high expectations relationship what, what does it look like what does it mean yeah and, and I'm always looking for ways to make it simple um, I, I talked about earlier about the um, stronger smarter approach and again I don't want to pretend for a moment that the work is not hard because the work is really hard and just ask Fiona and I know it myself it's hard work um, to be able to make a difference in the way that um, the humanity demands um, but the, the 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 key to my success at Sherberg and the key to your success Fiona I'm sure I hope you don't mind me speaking on your behalf when I say this is that you would tr- When it comes to the challenge of connecting with the humanity um, in a high expectations relationship, it's treating those children as if they were your own actual children, you know. And as you were speaking, I'm, before I'm having flashbacks to Sherwood, <laughs> oh, when I, I remember a lady at the front, uh, I could hear, I was in my office, I could hear her screaming and she was very grumpy. And she said, where's this dickhead principal, blah, 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 blah. It's supposed to be F and strong as my school. And um, I remember that, I remember that it was like time was just slowed down and I stared myself in the mirror. Uh, don't ask me why I had a mirror in my office. <laughs> <laughs> it, got, it was there before I got there. I had all black hair back then too. Um, but I stared myself in the mirror and thought, right, she's really grumpy, but... What if this was my own big sister that I was going to talk to? How would I want her spoken to? When she goes, if that was my own big sister and she's grumpy what, and she's about to meet with the principal, what kind of a meeting, what kind of a conversation would she want to have? When she goes home tonight and she's cooking a feed for her man, how are they going to talk about the principal and the conversation that went on? If that was my own big sister and then... You sort of try, you sort of metaphorically take your ego and you just hang it on the door over there so that you don't get upset about being called a dickhead or something like that. <laughs> and then you go and have the conversation. So that's what I mean yeah, by making yeah, it personal, yeah. trying to connect with people's humanity yeah, yeah. as if they are your own people. Excellent. Really good. Thank you so much, Fiona and Chris. No, Now it's your turn. If there's anybody, I can't see anybody there in the audience because of the slides, but it would be wonderful if uh, one of you would be brave enough to start the conversation. And remember, conversation is not necessarily asking questions. You can make a comment or opinion or statement or propose something. And what I really would love to do with, the, uh, with this panel here and everybody else is to try to shift the conversation also to, towards action. What can we do and what needs to be done? But you can say whatever you want to, uh, to break the ice and start the, um, the conversation. Who is brave enough to go first? Uh, yes, and, and can I ask you to a couple of things? If you can um, introduce yourself, and then use. If are you a teacher? No, I'm not a teacher. I'm a mother. So <laughs> then you use your mother's voice. <laughs> <laughs> a grumpy mother. So that because we have the microphone, so that it can capture what you want to say. So my name is Jancy. Um, my my background is with, I'm Armenian, but I grew up in Sweden. So uh, my family, we were refugees in Sweden. Now, um, I came here as an adult, and I'm really struggling with the Australian education system because I think it's, uh, the resources, it just goes to certain areas, certain um, social groups, um, very strong social class. So what I want to try and say is, as a, as a child from... Uh, 
ethnic background from refugees are received the same education as a Swedish kid whose parents were doctors. We all went to the same school. So the opportunities were the same. No one cared that, are you refugee, you've been in a refugee camp. Um, in Australia, you know, we talk about multiculturalism. It's a beautiful country of multicultural. I don't think that exists in our education system. Um, my son is in one of the most prestigious private schools in the country. Those kids live in a bubble. <laughs> my son lives in a bubble. He's a good kid, but they, they learn about the Aboriginal um, you know, culture. They learn about um, you know, Aboriginal art. But those children will never mix with the Aboriginal children. Those children will never understand someone like me who was a refugee. And I honestly, think, and you, at the beginning of the speech, you presented a graph. You know why? Why is it? Why is it like that? Well, I see it because my daughter, who's going to go to private school, is at the moment in a Catholic school, and huge difference in terms of fees. That school is not receiving the same resources, the same. Uh, teachers as my son. So to, to change that graph and to make it fair, we need to put the resources in. At my son's class, when they have reading, there's two, three other teachers coming in. My daughter's class, I have to go and help them. Okay? And my school, daughter's school is still all right. But, but what I'm trying to say is that we can, we can have amazing principals. We can have amazing teachers who work very, very hard. And they say to, you know, refugee kids, they say to the Aboriginal kids, you know, go, try your best, do your best. But the, the fact is, I personally think they don't have the same opportunity as someone who pays, whose parents pay $40,000 a year and they go to top school. Those, those children, their lives are much easier. And the, the, I think the solution is the government needs to do something. <laughs> Is it? Oh, no, but in Sweden, in, in Denmark, in Norway, in um, you know, Finland, government puts the resources in. You send your child to school and you don't worry. Okay, thank you. That's, uh, that's clear. Thank you. Now, I have, I have two Australian educators here that have much longer history than I do. Uh, Chris, would you like to make a comment of... Uh, oh, I think my views on elite private schools are pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Your point taken, Fiona. <laughs> Look, you know, I, I think we certainly need the resources and that, and we don't, you know, we're, we're a connected community school, our school. So, you know, we do, we are pretty well resourced. But I think... Also, like, it's not just having the resources, it's the way you use it. It's about getting the right people, certainly for a lot of the... Just because we have extra teachers, we don't always get the same results. You know, sometimes it could be, in our case, we have SLSOs in there to support the teachers purely because they've got the relationships and we find that gets better results. We certainly have our our quota of teachers, but I think, yeah, it is the resourcing, but it's also it's the way that we use it. Yeah, I, I think you have a good point there. I've been thinking about this uh, as well. That, and, and this was one of the questions during this conference today and yesterday, that is it possible in Australia now to somebody, a child, to go to early childhood, primary school, secondary school, uni, without ever being encountered with these uh, questions and issues of 
of indigenous cultures or languages? Yeah, look, I think it's uh, there's a kind of macro conversation to all of this as well. You know that, and and down down below, it's kind of like those elite. That whole sort of private school arrangements kind of protect kids from the world, whereas the public schooling system prepares the prepares kids for the world. You know, that's why I would never even entertain the thought of uh, sending any of my wife's here somewhere. Professor Grace Sarah out Mm. in the audience, Um, we would have never even considered that because you know kids have to learn to negotiate the world and the complexities. And what do you do if somebody steals your lunch, or how Mm. do you negotiate that? that circumstance. These are all real and tangible sort of life experiences. Um, and, and I don't want to sound dismissive of the point you're, you're making. It's, it's absolutely right that um, the, the way we invest in schooling is, is quite out of whack. You know, the way we invest in Aboriginal education is off the charts out of whack. You know, to think that we can... Um, dishonour or ignore the humanity of those Aboriginal children who are in remote schools and think that it's okay by just giving some kids access to what they think is a, a quality education, questions about that as well, right. uh, is just, is, it's bizarre and it's, it's in many ways inhumane and as a country, as a community, we're all the lesser for it. Yeah. Okay. Next one. I'm, I'm going to be unpopular here because I do work in an elite type school. <laughs> okay. Do you want to introduce yourself or you want to stay? My name is and I'm not going to say which one. <laughs> um, I, uh, we're hugely fortunate. Um, I think we are quite troubled in some ways by our privilege um, and are looking for ways to combat that. And one of the things that we've been trying to do is take our student population, which is frankly quite monocultural, but they are, you know, five-year-olds that are in that space and it's not their fault that they're there, and try and give them some sense of the world, um, some sense of shared humanity. And so our model has been to try and take students out on country and to, you know, go into community and that kind of thing. But I think part of what we are troubled by as educators is we appreciate the richness and the wonderful Aboriginal culture and I think we're almost scared to approach that ourselves in our classrooms because we don't want to get it wrong and I wonder how we approach that sort of anxiety, not because we're in a private school or a public school or a Catholic school. If we have teachers who are genuinely interested and want to do the right thing, but they're scared to do that, and then we reduce things so that we don't allow students to investigate complexity and nuance, it becomes kind of, you know, World Religions Day is about flags. Well, that's not what it's about. But it's a way you don't get it wrong. Um, and I wonder how we make teachers feel confident in all contexts to be comfortable with complexity and comfortable with nuance and have conversations with students and knowing that they might get it wrong and they won't be berated for that and that students can get that wrong too and we can say, look, actually, we're bringing someone in and we're having those conversations and how do we get it right next time together? Yeah, I think... Yeah, wonderful, wonderful question, Chris. Yeah, and, and look, let me not ignore or undermine your humanity by sort of making a mockery of elite private schools in that kind of a way. But um, I, I think 
an easy solution would be for your school to, I didn't, depending on where the kids are coming from and what communities you're interested in, send some of your teachers or two or three of your teachers to do a term on your salary at, at Menindi School um, and do a whole term there. Um, <laughs> and they will come come face-to-face with the, the complexity of community living and then yeah. when they go back to back to your school, uh, I'm assuming in Sydney here, they will be better placed to be able to grapple with those complexities or explain to other teachers in your staff room what those complexities are. And, yeah, if I was your school principal, I would be reaching out to this school principal and saying, how can we have an arrangement where I send a teacher to you for a full semester to work uh, in your community so that we can be richer for the for the experience. Because don't forget, Menindi and, or any of those mm. communities, they're not zoos that you go and mm. visit or anything like that. Mm. Um, they are places where you can go and... And I know you're not suggesting that, but... We do have a relationship with um, a school up north, but we do do something similar. Um, what, send teachers up there on your salary? On... To Kempsey, yeah. Yeah, yeah, OK. And I think probably... What has been more revelatory for us is actually not about what... It's not just about the teachers. I think a lot of our kids would never have met an Aboriginal person. And so it is, it becomes something like this sort of, I don't know, an unknown and so it's a bit scary. But Mm. the kids are playing together in the playground, you know, and we're going, they're coming to us and we're going to them. Um... I think that's really important, but I'm aware that there are, I suppose, less Aboriginal schools and you don't want to impose large groups of kids from the city and put them to disrupt that community too often. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, look, I think sometimes in life you just got to stumble on in and connect with, as I was saying earlier, connect with people's humanity and make that the starting point and be prepared to make, as long as it's respectful, make some mistakes along the way and ask questions as you go. Fiona? I I think also with that, like, one of the things if you did come to my school and I think that if going to Kempsey School and that, you would have that opportunity, you would see the importance of relationships and bringing people in. So if you were to come out... you would, you know, for a term you'd learn, you'd be speaking to lots of different Aboriginal people. So then when you go, go, come back here to Sydney, that you might be able to um, get in contact with somebody here um, who could help you and so that a local person here could come into your school. But it's about those relationships again, right, right. Um, yeah, and feeling comfortable to do it. And, you know, it takes time. All right, thank you. Somebody else? Let me take one, one person there in the, in the very pack. Hand up. Yes. Hi, um, my name's Matt. Uh, I uh, have the privilege of working for a government education system, which was a huge privilege. And um, my question is, I'm a dad to two quite young girls. My wife is Indian, South African, and they're the first Aussies born in Australia. And so I was just wondering, as a parent, how do you even begin to have these sort of conversations with kids? And also, how do, obviously, your own kids and also the kids in the class? And uh, what advice do you have for someone that's trying to work out how to be a good dad? <laughs> Why don't you have a crack at that one, Parsa? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we, we can have a chat in a bar. I can tell you some, <laughs> some things not to do, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> but it, w this is a serious thing. Would you like to say, uh, say something look, for me? Look, I think with Aboriginal kids, getting it right for Aboriginal kids, and it's about respect, and which is about every student in your class. So if you're talking about, you know, your wife was South African, Indian South African, you know, what do you do, you know, how do you want people to treat your wife and your kids? So do the same with Aboriginal kids, you know, talk about it. Yeah, like, you know, there are Aboriginal kids here and, and talk about the history here. Um, but I think it's just about ultimately respecting, you know, getting your kids to respect, you know, any person in the community. Um, yeah, that's all I could offer there. I think I would just reflect on the earlier conversation around the different layers upon your core humanity. When I hear the the description of or the or the mix or those layers upon your mm. children's core humanity, I would be just encouraging them to be able to one one not be confined to just one of those layers as if that's the the totality of who they are, but in fact they are all of those things. And if if you know if 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 they were my kids, I'd be wanting them to lean into and explore every element of those layers and the richness um, and celebrate that for what it is uh, and create experiences so that they can lean into it, understand it, be connected to it, but not ever have to be one or the other. You know, I, I, I watch... Um, and it's why, the, it's why the kind of concept of the concrete universal that Roy talked about was so emancipatory is all of a sudden you don't have to be locked into being Australian, you don't have to be locked into being Italian or Aboriginal or whatever. Truth is we're all of those things and we have every right to explore those things. So that would be my advice yeah, to you. Very good, very good. Next one. Hi, how are you? My name's <laughs> Harley Captain. I'm a proud Yulimo woman. Um, I came tonight because I absolutely admire um, you guys sitting up on the stage. There is a lot, I think, I'm sitting here with my Aboriginal education sisters. Um, we work in public education and we're kind of leaders, you know, to support schools on their improvement journey. And sitting back and listening to the conversations, I, um, you know, really understand the work that you do, Chris, and absolutely love, you know, about the high expectations relationships. It had a big impact on me growing up down the road here, Redfern and Waterloo, and it was a teacher that made a difference for me, you know. I, I always thought that I was the dumbest kid in the school and um, that didn't have those aspirations. I guess my question is in the conversation is about, you know, for me it's all around aspirational conversations, you know, I'm kind of all about, you know, our kids dreaming big and about, you know, seeing themselves, you know, in the future as to anything that they want to be. Um, I have a few, I guess, issues at the moment because we, our resources are spread really thinly, you know, right across, um, you know, Sydney and, and around the state. I know a school um, that might be wanting to share with yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I guess, you know, we're here, you know, advocating and working, you know, face-to-face -face with our kids. You know, at the moment, I support 240 schools right across South West Sydney with our biggest populations in Sydney and our Aboriginal students. I've got three staff members to do that, you know, and it's, you know, it, it's really, really difficult, the work that we do, you know. We work tirelessly and I guess I'm here to say, you know, like here in public schools, you know, this is where the majority of our Aboriginal students are. And, you know, I talk to our student, our teachers about the fact that education is mandatory and that those teachers have a massive opportunity to actually, you know, get excited, you know, their eyes lighting up when those kids walk in the room. And, you know, the three of us here, we deliver lots of professional learning around, you know, building relationships and all that sort of stuff. But it, it really does, um, it makes us sad when we see those statistics. And, you know, recently we heard from our uncles who, you know, founded Aboriginal Education 40 years ago. They're saying that they don't feel that our gaps will close. But I guess there's a lot that I want to say. And I said, okay, what will I do? <laughs> How can we 
um, you know, we need to see more Aboriginal people highlighting in the in the you know in the spotlight. You know, our kids need to see more people. You know, at the moment, it's you know we hear about the footy players, we hear about those ones, or we hear those negative Aboriginal people that are being highlighted. You know, but there's a lot of deadly people out there doing amazing work. You know, and I know the communities that you're from. You know, I've got mob from Sherberg, I've been to Menindi. You know, my mob's from Walgut. Um, but, you know, I think our, our communities and our kids are suffering. We need more resources. So my question is, how do we get that? Who do we have to speak to? Have you got any contacts? <laughs> 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 Thank you. Like more, you know, just your everyday deadly black fellas that are out there mm. doing good work for their community. You know, we want to see them shine, and you know, that's my big question. I think that's something that we're struggling with on the ground. Anything else, my sister? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks very much, colleagues. Uh, very good. Any any comments to this? I totally agree about like that. We've got to get the everyday role models up there and, you know, it's not just about footy players and all that. They're good and they have their plays and even if they uh, do happen to be Queensland or whatever. But, <laughs> but, but I think it's important that it's, we have, you know, highlight and promote the good work that's being done. So thank you. But, and also you saw how many kids up on stage, 2020 deadly, really solid, strong, smart, young young black kids appear. My bias is coming through, obviously, but I share yours, your sense that, you know, state schools really are great schools. And what makes them great is because they can't have a circumstance where it's fit in or forget about you, you know. Um, we have to work with everybody and the communities that we're in, they give us their best children. We can't reject them. Uh, and so we have to put the work in. Um, and I mentioned earlier that the kind of macro politics around this is really difficult because, you know, there was a time when we pretend we've got this um, private school, public school kind of circumstance. It's not a private school thing. It's heavily funded by the public. And any efforts to try to remediate that circumstance, uh, politicians have a go at it, they step near it, and then the... the people with powerful lobby groups to step in and politicians back off and they say, oh, no, we'll just leave it as it is. We don't have a private school system in Australia. We've got a public school that's, you know, neglected uh, and nowhere nearly as invested in as it should um, with a quasi-private school system that attracts... From, from my perspective, way too many public, um, public dollars. Yeah. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we have one minute left, and I have a last question to you. What are you going to do more with these issues that you haven't done yet? And 55 seconds, um, I, I, would like to hear, <laughs> I would like to hear three people saying, what are you going to do more after this conversation with these issues? And then if you, if you do that, we have an extra surprise treat for you. <laughs> Who would like to go first? What are you going to do? My name is Mark. I teach at a public school. Yay. I have a lot of colleagues here tonight. I can't name this. Okay, we live for Bleeding Village. We're going to do what we've been doing, which is teach kids to think okay. and speak up. Excellent. Yeah. Somebody else, wonderful. Yes. Um, I, my name's Joanne, and, and I'm very proud to say I'm from Kingsgrove Public School, and um, I'm very proud to say that we've got some fabulous um, uh, Aboriginal teachers, and I think for me that's the best thing to showcase for our Indigenous students that we actually have wonderful, compassionate, passionate, dedicated, committed 
all the staff. They've got a very strong moral purpose and they strongly believe in the values of public education. As a parent, I don't. Th- I think it's a no-brainer. If you really want to teach your child to be exceptional, uh, an exceptional human being in this world, you would do them an injustice if you don't put them in a public education school. <laughs> so, um, but I think we're just going to keep doing what we're doing um, and embrace the Aboriginal yeah, culture and embed it into our curriculum authentically. Okay, one more thing. I want to hear one more thing. Yes. <laughs> to push for a change in teacher training. Okay. It's our best resource. It doesn't matter what school you teach in, it doesn't matter whether it's private or public, it doesn't matter what your politics are, without fantastic educators, nothing else means shit. Okay. So I really think we have to change the way we are teaching teachers to teach. You don't learn to teach in a school, right? We all know that because that's where we learn to teach. So I think we have okay. to turn that on its head, we have to work with the universities to turn that on its head, and then we'll see a real shift. Okay. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You have been a wonderful audience. And uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Fiona. Now is the time for the surprise treat. So we're going to have a Menindee choir back here and doing a farewell song for you. Thank you very much. Welcome, Menindee. Thank you. Excellent. Sitting on the riverbank, we're looking for the fish, we're reeling the fish in, we're cooking the fish, we're eating the fish and throwing the bones away. This time we're gonna do it, but he's not gonna join. <laughs> <laughs> That was Parsi Salberg speaking with Fiona Kelly and Dr. Chris Sara. In the next episode, Professor Salberg talks with Professor Michael Rich from Harvard University and student Evelyn Fechner about growing up digital. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House. <laughs>